Welcome to The Man Who Was Scared to Death, a brand new audio documentary from the master of mortality, Mr. Philip Oven. A man who has thought about not existing every day since the age of 12 and has even seen an existential therapist to come to terms with dying. In these recordings, we speak to people who deal with death as part of their daily jobs to see if their views of existence have changed over the years as they try to help Philip come to terms with his own. Today we talk to Mark Talbert, a palliative care doctor. Please note, these recordings took place before COVID, if you can imagine such a time. As you know, we got in contact because I'm recording these series of podcasts uh, where we look at the people who work in and around death, given my own preoccupation with the subject matter, or more, more realistically, of, of not existing. So my, I like to call it a flaw, has always been that I'm so scared of not existing that I think about it pretty much every day since the age of 12. Mm. And so far we've spoken to some very interesting people who it would seem that the people I've met who work in that industry also have similar preoccupations with the concept. Mark, can you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Yes, hi Phil. I'm, my name is Mark Talbot. I'm a, a palliative care consultant in, in Cardiff, in Villindra Cancer Centre, and I work in the hospice as well. I do my own calls there. And um, I've been working in palliative care since 2006. I was a GP before that. I was a, a general hospital doctor before that. So I come in contact with people who are faced with death and dying pretty much every single day. And, and talk to them and have lots of conversations with them. And uh, the reason I'm in London today is because I'm going to a, a play in Soho Theatre called The Colours. Mm-hmm. And Harriet Madley, who set up the play, interviewed me and interviewed some of my patients um, okay. and their carers in Cardiff in the Cancer Hospital in Belindra Cancer Centre. Um, she's recorded all that, and the, the actors on stage will will say out aloud, verbatim, what my patients have said and what some of the doctors and, and medical students have said, and, and, and play that out, out loud. So all of these are patients who are faced with, with death and dying, uh, palliative care patients with significant symptoms and who, who are inpatients in the cancer centre. Oh, that's amazing. I take it, I mean, it probably sounds like the wrong kind of question, but none would be able to come here or watch it themselves, or would, is there going to be a recording of it that they can watch? Well, some, some have, actually. You work clearly with people who are suffering and, and near the end of their life. Is it something, a subject matter that's always been of interest to you? I, I think so. I mean, it's, it's, when, when I was a junior doctor, I found that some doctors and nurses would, would shirk conversations around this topic a little bit or, mm. or avoid these conversations. I, I never did. I mean, I, I, I was involved in a few really difficult situations when I was a very junior doctor, even a medical student, crisis situations, and I, I didn't particularly mind going, to, going into that room. They, they often say the, the most difficult room in a big hospital is the intensive care unit. Right. But even intensive care doctors say the most difficult room is the relatives room where you take people and, and tell people bad news and, and express bad well, news. This, and I, yeah. I never had problems doing that in a sense. I always found that um, relatively straightforward, but but also I felt maybe it's in part because I'm a, a foreigner, maybe it's, uh, English is my second language. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just means that I perhaps take the communication or the speed down a notch and maybe I... <laughs> Absurdly, I, I speak more clearly mm-hmm. um, because, because I have, because have to think. Yes. Yeah, I have to think about. So you're my choosing English. your words more carefully, and therefore, yeah. presumably, 
yeah, yeah. making people feel calmer. Maybe also more simplistic words. Yeah. I don't know, Phil, if you think that's the well, case. Well, we, we but, can review uh, it afterwards. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's, that's funny you say, because actually one of the themes that has come up has been, so the, the, the person I spoke to last uh, works in grief, mm. not counselling, but very much in sort of recovery, I think mm. she calls it. So she's there like a very much like a CBT sort of approach to it. You know, like these are steps that, you, that will help you mm. overcome the grief. And she was saying again, of course, you know, she lost her husband and, and it is the people that get left behind who mm. seem to suffer. So it's very interesting you say about that relatives room because mm. presumably, when you can tell me, you know, you sense a different attitude from the people who are terminally ill to the people that they're leaving behind. Yes, I mean, it really, really varies. I mean, I'm surprised sometimes when I'm in the cancer center or in the general hospital or the hospice at, at how some people react to the news of this imminent bad mm. situation or they, that they're going to die fairly soon. Some are relatively really relaxed about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, some may have some inner turmoil that they're not showing me. And, and others are devastated and it's, it's terrible news and they're really frightened and they have to have many many conversations and and and, and sometimes we really struggle to, to to resolve it as such so do, would you say there have been situations when people hmm. haven't resolved it or are una- unable to accept yes so I've, I've, I've come across those situations yeah. certainly I mean it's relatively rare and I think the human brain is quite good at adapting to even to really really awful news mm. I mean, one of the things I found when I first set foot in hospice was the level of humor there and the level yeah. of laughter. And, and that's from the patients, from the relatives, from the staff. There, there's a sort of um, proximity of humor and, 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 la- and laughter sometimes with the really serious topics in life, death, dying, bereavement, and other things that I've always found really fascinating. I, yeah. I've always found that really strange. But on, on the train here, I thought, oh, Phil might think I'm a bit of a fraud because there's two situations that usually come in my, in my clinic or on the ward round, which is either people are afraid of dying yeah. and the event of dying, or they're afraid of the big void, the death, the, the what ha- whatever happens after. Which is why yeah. I very much fall into the latter. Yeah, yeah, and I think most of my patients are more afraid of the dying. The actual process, yeah. really? Yeah. Okay, that's very interesting. Um, so when I have conversations with them, I'd say more of them are sort of worried of what happens around the last 48 hours, last yeah. 24 hours, what typically happens, will I be breathless, will I feel sick, will I have pain, and that yeah. kind of thing. And, and and whether in Wales we have a different attitude towards uh, what happens afterwards or yeah. you know people have religious beliefs and and or think that something else uh, will happen later on or there, there's just a big nothingness mm-hmm. I, I don't know and I don't have the answers to that um, what's, what's I, your own personal I mean what, what, what's your view I'm, I'm not religious I'm I'm an atheist and I think we just pretty much get recycled all mm-hmm. our bodily atoms just go back into the ground and mm-hmm. you know if if the part of me that that the atoms are constituted myself become uh, you know a hedgehog's hair or something mm-hmm. like that um you know so be it you know i'm not that arrogant to assume that you know a, a, hedge, a hedgehog's bristle is any less important yes. than myself we can have, well yeah i mean <laughs> <laughs> you're probably in the best position to argue the point but but, 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 but yeah, lots of, lots more people are afraid of what happens beforehand. Yeah. So I'm, I'm reasonably good at explaining that and sort of reassuring them and saying, you know, with good palliative care, I think most of the time nowadays people will have a, 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 a good death. I still see bad deaths sometimes, mm. but it's it's relatively rarer now that that happens. I'm and saying. actually, this because obviously this the nature of this podcast and hopefully many more is to is to essentially talk about the subject more and hopefully mm. reach out to people who who are fearful, but. 
you know, you, as you say, you know, uh, understanding in a, uh, the medicinal way, medicinal, I'll forget that, we have to come <laughs> the medicinal way of helping, uh, medicinal. <laughs> but, medicinal. <laughs> I think we're going to have to keep that in, actually. Um, no, 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 it's fine. Um, as we, we, able to, we are able to, to treat, you know, the act of dying better, you know, would you say that it's not straightforward but quite similar in most cases now of the patients that you see? It, relatively. I mean, I, I have some patients who, who die without any medications whatsoever, pretty much. So we cross off all their medications and try and get them to the place where they want to be maybe at home or maybe the hospice mm -hmm. and focus on the things that are important in life uh, for instance bringing that rare bottle of wine in and, and having a few mm -hmm. glasses and yep. experiencing that taste that you so miss maybe and 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 those things really matter i think that sort of counts yeah, or have a cigarette you know um uh, you know things things like that it's, right you know it's it, i spoke yeah but, but that's like funny because I would have thought, I mean, again, luckily I'm uh, not terminally ill, but yeah, why wouldn't you just start drinking your head? If, that's, if that was your particular point, you know, passion point, or take drugs, or, or do yeah. whatever. Yeah, I mean, of course, um, I, I mean, have to health officially, I'll, I'll have to say here that, you know, some of these um, items interact with the medication you might be taking. Of course, of course. But, but lots of people find they don't need any medication mm. towards the end of life. Some need help with opioids or, or morphine mm. or when their breathing is bad or when they've got a lot of pain, and, and that can be very helpful. I've, I mean, a lot of people think palliative care is the last weeks of life, but mm. actually we've become very much the last years of right. life. And, and some of my patients are on morphine for quite some quiet time on a stable dose. It means they can go out, do things, go to the post office, mm -hmm. interact, go to the pub. And, and they're not maybe huddled up in, in pain on the sofa at home yeah. watching daytime telly, which is the worst thing you can probably imagine. Yeah. But, you know, getting them to a place where their nausea is better, helping them through things. We, we sometimes discharge people from the palliative care service. I was about to say, I mean, how, yeah, yeah. people surprised you in that way. Absolutely. Um, I've, uh, some patients we've had on our books for 10 years on and off. Wow. And okay. they've had life-limiting illnesses where mm -hmm. things could happen quite quickly, mm -hmm. but, but, but just haven't. So therein lies the unpredictable nature of, of the job. And it is becoming less predictable and... When patients ask me, oh, Mark, how, how much longer might I have left? I, I don't give an answer anymore because I often don't know and I've been yeah. wrong so many times. Right. Well, who, so who, who, who would suggest palliative care for pain? I mean, is that the, is that the GP, basically, or hospital? Oft, or? Often in the, in the hospital, the nurses will be aware of the palliative care team, mm -hmm. uh, the GPs, the district nurses, and, 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 and different staff. Maybe the oncology nurse mm. specialist might say, get, get palliative care involved. And... The, the reaction of patients sometimes is, oh, oh dear, palliative care, that's the last days yeah. and weeks of life, and they're, they're really worried about it, but then they meet myself and mm -hmm. they meet the nursing team or, or, or the, the junior doctors on the palliative care team, and they kind of go, oh, these are just normal human beings, cool. a strange German guy with an accent, but <laughs> um, he seems all right. And we have a chat, we have a talk, and if they don't want to see us again, fine. If, if, if they do want to see us again, then, that, then that, that's great, and we'll follow them up. If we get on top of their symptoms, then they can go and go back to the GP service again and call us again if they need us, and, and that's how we set it up. Really. So you mentioned earlier about you st not started off, but one of your jobs was as a GP. What, what, obviously, again, you are dealing with people who are ill, but presumably not as close to death's door as you are in your your current job what led you into your current job i mean has it always been an interest or i think my first job i saw a lot of discomfort and pain on a gastroenterology ward people mm -hmm. with advanced really advanced liver disease alcoholic liver disease yeah. and 
I, I just felt the, the the pain from that was uh, was was really awful, and I just wanted to. I, bec- I, I gained an interest in pain medicine, yes. uh, in, in in opioids, and and how to manage manage pain better, and I wanted to do a better job around the communication of these things as well. And I, I I got inspiration from some really great palliative care doctors and worked with them for a bit, and I just wanted to take it a little bit further. So I took a job in the hospice and didn't know what to expect, but I really loved it, and, and I stayed with it. And, yeah. Um, I'm still doing palliative care to this date. Has your attitude towards the you know mortality changed since you got into this profession? Yes, I mean, I think about it more, but it's not necessarily negative. I've got okay. two children, and, and we talk very openly about death. It's not something that we sort of shirk. Do you want me asking how old? Sorry, just for... Um, so I, I talk to my daughter, who's six years old. Um, um, my son, Idris, he's a little bit younger. Yeah. He's, he's just two years old, mm-hmm. so he probably wouldn't understand what <laughs> I'm on probably, about. Probably, yeah. <laughs> but um, I, younger children have really open questions about this topic. And mm-hmm. I, I know some parents, they, they, they don't go there. They don't, uh, let's not talk about it. And they even hide away the, the facts that certain family members have died or something like that. I but, know, but yeah, it does seem ridiculous, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's as much a part of our lives as is births and think, yeah, the, the middle segment of our life yeah. as, as the end segment of our lives. But the funny thing, I mean, I have a child as well, he's now 16, but I remember at the age of six and he was, uh, I think as a tactic of not going to sleep, started asking those kind of questions, what happens when you die, etc., mm-hmm. etc., and funny enough, despite the fact I was, I think at that time I was in counselling because of my, my fear of not existing, like, took over my life. You know, I was saying the other day that, you know, I used to break the year down into months. So I would, ultimately I'd be happier in April than July because April's closer to the start mm. and July is closer to the end, which means another year, which means another year. And it was just mm. a ridiculous way of looking. But when he was asking, you know, obviously I was giving him the answers that come naturally or we don't know. Yeah. Um, there, there may be a God, there may not. There may be something after, there may not. It's mm. impossible to tell. And, and then that subject never came up again. Mm. But the honesty with children, I mean, and actually our peers, I, I do wonder why, you know, I work in editorial. It's, it's not really talked about, mm. you know. And I suppose for good reason people don't want to talk about it because they see it as being depressing or yeah. see it as being, you know, you know, a bit uncouth to talk about it. But Yeah. It, even I find it difficult sometimes to open the topic up with mm. people who are a bit reticent. So some people could talk about it all day, but other people find it really, really tricky. And then we sometimes have to sort of find ways into that conversation. Mm-hmm. I need, I nearly have to sort of ask checking questions. Are you okay to talk to about yeah. this? And, 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 and questions like that. And so the, the patient or the family can pull the handbrake a bit if they feel this is going mm-hmm. a bit far or they're very sensitive about this subject. But it's it's interesting and I, I don't have the answers of what happens afterwards yeah. but I've, I've met some really really interesting people over the years people who've worked in philosophy or in ethics mm-hmm. or religion or, or you know politicians engineers various others who've, who've had different theories about it and have different ways of perhaps dealing with with this fact that our existence will will cease at one point well yeah and actually philosophically I, I remember talking to someone who suggested because you've presumably never existed before mm. forever mm. and then obviously sparking into life what's mm. to say that doesn't happen again at mm. some point in this in the time space continuum because yeah. obviously it's almost impossible to imagine yeah. not being alive yes has your attitude towards death changed a little bit I mean, I mean I'm talking about your own yeah mortality. yeah I think so I mean I've basically been able to soak up some of the views of my patients over the years and and I perhaps have taken on some of the the, the, the views where I've thought, oh wow, that's uh, that's amazing. That's really changing 
my yeah. my attitude towards it. And I mean, I think I had someone who who had a strong interest in 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 the cosmos mm-hmm. and 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 the science of that, and you know, knowing where Beetlejuice four is or whatever, yeah, basically, sure, and that, sure. that kind of that kind of thing. And if you sort of look at that, and if you look at the vastness of everything and how how huge everything is and how how teeny teeny mm-hmm. we are and how teeny our little problems are, you mm-hmm. kind of you, it's it's kind of it's it's scary, but it's also slightly reassuring. I find. Yeah, I mean, there is something to know. I mean, for me, the positive I've tried to make of this sort of obsession, I, I suppose I could call it, is that it really genuinely does make me try to enjoy every single day. Mm. Not because I think it's going to be the last, but just because it seems such a waste. Like, if you're, if you're, if you're just so scared of something that you know is probably going to happen, I say probably because that's that much in denial that I'm not even going to accept it is, mm. that actually it, it makes me so, you know, I'm not particularly, you know, I'm not scared of things like, you know, I've done reasonably, you know, sort of talks in front of large crowds or something. Mm. Like it just doesn't phase me mm. because ultimately at the back of your head, it's not going to be worse than mm. not existing. Mm. So actually maybe it can be, you know, positive to be aware of your own, you yeah. know, your own timeline and existence. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, I find it interesting talking to, to mm-hmm. you right now because it's, uh, it's, it's yet another, uh, another view and, and, and a way of looking at it. And, mm-hmm. and I find your views, uh, so don't get me wrong, but no. I, I find it quite rare. I mean, I've, it's quite, I find it quite unusual mm-hmm. uh, in, in just in, in terms of the people that, that I've, I've met. Um, it does remind me, though, and I wonder if you can do this uh, during your, your quest to mm-hmm. talk to people. Yeah of my conversations with a person called Stephen Cave. He's a philosopher. You'll find him either in London or in Berlin. And well, he's, we can go to he, Berlin, can't we? <laughs> he, he wrote a, a great book called Immortality, mm-hmm. and he looks at immortality through the ages, and the, the book is in four segments. Mm-hmm. And he, he looks at our, our constant fears of death mm-hmm. and how we try and overcome them and how we've tried to overcome them over the ages. And reading his bo- book was, was, was quite... Uh, revealing yeah. uh, in terms of how far we will go to to deny and defy the fact that this yeah. might be an eventuality for ourselves. There was a there was a story recently about a guy who says he's aiming, in all seriousness, to live until he's 180, hmm. and he's obviously got lots of ways he's doing it. But hmm. and as a human race, we are hmm. living longer yeah. and reason, you know. But I suppose in my head, it's not so much the. And I'm not actually. That's another good point. The aging process hmm. now. I don't know if it's because of my particular uh, thought patterns about the subject, but aging just isn't a concept to me Mm. because I think I've felt exactly the same headspace since I was around about 17 and Mm. nothing's ever changed. Mm. Do you find people in your experience have changed drastically, say, when they learn that maybe there's not as much time as they, they hoped? Or is age, age just not a problem, not not even a factor? Not really, no. I mean, it's it's a it's a seismic event. It's a big event, but um, they stay the same characters, really. I I, I think, and mm-hmm. so their relatives tell me as well. I had the real privilege of met, meeting a lady called Alison. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alison was on the uh, the BBC Horizon program that I was on, and she renewed her her uh, wedding vows during during that program, and I was allowed to to go on that program as well. Mm-hmm. And, and it was really beautiful that she, she managed to do that. But she really had a, quite a lot of fear about the dying mm-hmm. uh, part of it. She had a lot of questions about it. But she did not change her character and right. attitude. And she was always full of jokes. Uh, I knew her for about, I'd say, about three, three and a half years. Yeah, so long uh, enough she, to form a proper yeah, friendship, she, really. That's right. Uh, she, she, she died last week. Oh, and, my God. Um, very, very sad. I feel very sad. I'm going to go to a funeral mm-hmm. next week. 
but she was a very special person who didn't change her outlook despite having this earth-shattering diagnosis of yeah. terminal cancer and she just carried on uh, in a same old way, way with the same old jokes and yeah. and and fairly cheeky as well you know and, and always always had always cheered me up in my clinic so so back to, to the age thing do you, do you not you wouldn't say then there's more of an acceptance say the older you are receiving the news or, or is it pretty similar reactions each time well there's one pattern that i see sometimes so i see some of the older people are sort of okay when i introduce the topic mm-hmm. And then the younger younger relatives often butt in and say, "Oh, don't talk like that. You have to fight it. You yeah, have yeah, to yeah. wage war on the cancer. You have to battle yeah. it, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And the older ones just look at them, nod their head, and kind of go, oh, "Okay, um, <laughs> it's my battle." By the way, yeah. I mean, some of them say that. Some of them just kind of go along with it. But it just seems a little bit. Sometimes it's the younger want to portray their vision yeah. of the battle with cancer, or yeah. the battle with terminal illness. Yeah on what they've read onto the, the older generation and the older generation is like, you know what, can I have a word with you alone, doctor? Yeah. And and then then the, the younger relative is asked is ushered out. Yeah. <laughs> <Very> <laughs> and quick. then they say, look, uh, to be honest, I I I um I'll I'll try this last bit of chemo, but mm-hmm. that's it. And if it's if it if it if I get side effects and I'm not having any more and then I say, Can we talk about what happens towards the end and say, Yeah, of course. But when my relative comes in, the younger relative, they might not be ready to hear this. So yeah. let's not talk about it then. So is it uh, some of the stuff that you, you discuss more of a practical nature, would you say? Like, as you say, a lot of people are more interested in what actually happens, say, the last 48 hours or last 24 hours. So is a lot of it it's just practical ways of coping? Is a lot of it is that, yeah, right. a, a bit of that sort of, you know, how, how many have you, how, how often have you seen someone dying, yeah. Phil? Uh, oh, yeah. that, I'm sorry. I was, wasn't expecting. I've never. Uh, well, no, never. You see, uh, I, ironically, my life has not really been affected by. I, I've had mm. to two two people I know commit suicide. Mm. Who one was an ex and one was a friend, but they didn't. We weren't close at the time. You know, mm. been years since. Mm. Never seen anyone yeah. die. Yeah, and 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 that's the same for most people. Yeah. I mean, um, even some of the medical students that I work with haven't been with someone when they've died or in, in those moments and, mm-hmm. and then remember back to sort of well remember back to Victorian <laughs> times no you can't remember back to Victorian times but remember what you've read about yeah. Victorian times where where people died at home and the whole family would gather mm-hmm. and stay in the room and one person always had to stay in the room that just doesn't happen so much anymore I mean death is nearly sort of sanitized away nowadays you mm-hmm. get whisked into hospital or whisked into a clinical area and if you're lucky maybe a hospice mm-hmm. and then it goes to the funeral parlor where the the, the body is people put makeup on mm-hmm. it and put the nice clothes on yep. it and that sort of thing and and the whole sort of process and concept of being someone and seeing a natural death is, is isn't isn't there anymore my guess that you know people maybe older people would be more accepting of death but i've just kind of thought as we just had a break there what a ridiculous notion that is because I know that it wouldn't apply to me mm. I've just said that I feel the same since I was seeing things so what makes me think I won't I'm 44 now I'm not going to mm. think when I'm say mm. touch wood get to 70 I'm just going to suddenly think oh it's okay because I've had yeah. 70 years I, I can't see this ob- let's say obsession going away so yeah. why would you at an older age suddenly go okay well I've had a good run no I mean it's it's probably age independent I must say I've um, I've met all age groups in palliative care we see people in their in their teens, in their twenties, in their thirties, uh, one of the people who was most relaxed about the notion mm-hmm. I ever met was a fifteen-year-old. 
Right. And and he was going to die very soon. See, I mean that, that I like almost close to crying just because you can't help when you've got kids to yeah. not put your kid in that position. And and his parents found that so incredibly difficult yeah. to see that he was kind of okay with it, and how can he be okay with that? And 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 they kind of took on, I think, ninety percent of yeah. of the pain of it somehow. Do you ever keep in contact with with the relatives? Yeah, and they, they they phone me up sometimes, really? and and I've I've gone to a few funerals, mm-hmm. and and yeah, so I've done a bit of bereavement follow up for for people as well. Um, uh, we had a a very young young lady in her early thirties who died, and I kept in touch with with the mum. Right, you, you found it incredibly difficult to mm-hmm. deal with this whole situation, and it was it was heartbreaking. It was really awful. So it it just felt like the only decent thing I could do was to stay in touch and uh, we don't really have a setup necessarily for that in the NHS yes. when, when it's not the direct patient uh, on, on, on the books. The bonds and emotional bonds that you make mm. in your of course your work must be quite deep. They are um, and I suppose you know I'm a consultant, I'm a clinical director now so that takes me sometimes unfortunately into the more managerial leadership types, um, mm. email-y sort of spheres. And, and so uh, certainly I would say my, my, my nursing staff and the junior doctors uh, see it far more day to day and I do my ward rounds and, and see people and, and in the clinics we have some really in-depth conversations but it, it's, it's really a specialty where you kind of do keep in touch and, and you do make that real emotional, mm-hmm. nearly spiritual connection with people and, and, that, and that can be very nice. Equally sometimes people wouldn't want that and they would just want you to be functional and sort of say which medicines are best yeah. for this nausea that I've got. And, yeah. Or that can be the intro sometimes and, and they sort of say okay let's focus on the symptoms first and oh yeah now I've got a few questions maybe about mm-hmm. um, about planning for the future and mm-hmm. what treatments would I want, what treatments wouldn't I want in future. So if it came to me having you know future cardiopulmonary resuscitation so someone giving me chest compressions or electric shocks, mm-hmm. no thank you. Okay. Um, but if I needed some intravenous antibiotics for a pneumonia, then yeah, get me into hospital, give it a try, see see if it works, see if it's reversible, go for it. You spoke earlier about being surprised by the atmosphere mm. in a hospice has actually mm. been quite a you know um, a happy place or full of laughter. If I was to walk now into your ward, what what do you think? I'd, how do you think I'd find the atmosphere? Um, you're more than in invited Phil to come down to to Cardiff um, I we have a lot of visitors and guests and I think most of them later say oh it's actually quite relaxed you just sort of entered the space and there was lots of people there quite busy so you t- the main thing is kind of getting out of the way yeah um, <laughs> including for the physios the dietitians your wife's the dietitian yes. so you know they, they might just push you out of the way if you're in their way and kind of get that to the patients fun. and and it's a busy place lots of things are happening lots of the patients sitting there with tablet computers smartphones mm-hmm. laptops busying themselves about their work and emails mm-hmm. and various other things life goes on and and it's um yeah it's it's you, you you kind of enter the space and you don't necessarily realize that you've entered a new space and you're there and you talk to people and I try and be as natural as I possibly can and just, just have a chat with people. I, I don't go in with an agenda, just open mind, really. And have you thought about your own death? Hmm. I have, actually, yeah, and I've talked to my wife about it. So we've both made our done our wills, mm-hmm. and we both want to give each other a lasting power of attorney mm-hmm. for health and welfare so that we can decide, make decisions on, on each other's behalf. Uh, I think uh, my own death, you know, hopefully not falling off a bike 
uh, <laughs> cycling to work. But um, you know, if I were in that situation and had a massive head injury or something like that on ITU, I think maybe one or two days of trying to reverse things. And yeah. if that didn't work, then just just, just leave it be. So yeah. you think? So maybe your own view of death is that got that practicality that comes with your job. Do you do you remember thinking differently about it before you got into that industry? Yeah, I think I think before before I went into medicine, I think I would have probably said, "Oh yeah, try everything. Yeah. Uh, keep me alive. If I'm on a ventilator, there's a bit of brain activity left, then um, then just keep yeah. going." But then because that's my view at the moment, you see, yeah. and I, it, I don't care. Well, no, maybe not the cost because I probably couldn't afford it. But yes, whatever. You know, why not? Yeah, but I, then I think I look at the United States and there's 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 nursing homes of people on ventilators. Where yeah. who haven't who haven't done anything or responded for 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 years and who knows what life is worth? Maybe it is mm. worth that that life is still there for some people. Um, it wouldn't be for me. No. It wouldn't be for me. But maybe it would be for you. And and that's what that's why we're all so desperately different. Yeah. That's what makes this whole thing interesting. So let's get a bit of a darker tone here. Oh. You're on you're on your own ward. <laughs> Unfortunately, I hate to tell you this, but you've got a terminal illness. Hmm. What's the what's the do's and don'ts for you? You know, what what would you say yes to in terms of say drugs or, or, or treatments? Absolute minimum, actually. Right. Um, so strip it down. If I'm on a cholesterol drug, then sod that. I'm not having any more of that. Thank you very much. Absolute minimum possible that I can get away with. Cross most things off. If I develop pain, then yes, please, for some li- small doses of morphine uh, or oxycodone or whatever whatever suits me. Mm-hmm. And how, how palliative care has changed, uh, or certainly how medicine has changed, that, you know... Uh, Morphine gets a lot of bad press because many years ago people used to get big, massive doses intravenously mm-hmm. and then they'd get side effects. And in good palliative care, you give small doses frequently mm-hmm. until the pain goes away. Yeah. Um, does that so does that mean the patients have control? Or patients can have yeah. control. Patients can take it themselves. And maybe the first dose is so small that well, maybe they need to take another dose an hour later. Mm-hmm. But you you work yourself up to to the right doses and you try and get away with the absolute minimum possible. Mm-hmm. So. In my arsenal for myself, if I were very ill, I'd, I'd like to have some opioids uh, like morphine or oxycodone, for instance, mm-hmm. anti-sickness medications, medicines for secretions if there's too much liquid and it's affecting my breathing, for instance, and, and, and anything to help with breathlessness like steroids, for instance, can be quite helpful for, for situations where people are feeling quite breathless. So, so those are some of the things I'd look at. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, in the United States, uh, in palliative care, a lot of people, because of overwhelming fatigue, which is one of the worst yep. symptoms in, in, in people with advanced cancer or other illnesses, uh, a lot of people prescribe drugs like methylphenidate, which mm-hmm. is sometimes also known as Ritalin, yep. uh, or modafinil, which are sort of stimulants. Yeah. Um, I sometimes say to my patients, try a few coffees uh, yeah, in, in the morning, and because these drugs are structurally quite similar, actually. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that helps them sometimes. But sometimes when they've got things to do, I, I've treated and I treat a lot of academics they've got papers to write despite the terminal illness mm. thank you very much and they have to submit things uh, and sometimes that helps them with the the fatigue side of things and they can get about and do their jobs you've mentioned the academics or people that obviously are still working hmm. do does their attitude towards that change obviously once they you know they know that there's a limited time left do you find that they would throw themselves into that work to leave maybe a legacy or you know is it just something to do yeah. to take away you know, the, 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 mind, the boredom or I've met one or two people like that where they say right I need to get this paper done and it's going to be my last paper and it's going to be my greatest and, and, and they really it's, it's really a, a goal for them to, to do that 
Legacy is quite an interesting one in, in my clinics, and we talk about it a lot. There's uh, what will be left of you later. I had a friend who, who died um, after a suicide, and there isn't really a... So much is online nowadays, and yeah. there, there isn't an online space of him anywhere. Right. And I sometimes wish there was something where I just go to and maybe leave a message on mm-hmm. his birthdays or something like that. You know, it sounds a bit strange to say that, but it's, it's just a space to go to, really. What's your deathbed tune? Uh, Road to Nowhere by Talking Heads. Mm. Is so, that actually a thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I surprisingly large amount of my patients talk about. We've had all sorts of things, and um, actual songs that have played have been I've heard twice at Crocodile Rock by Elton John really? for some reason. Yeah, but there's a few things, and that's ranging from Slipknot to Gustav Mahler to to all sorts of things that I hear in, in people's rooms. And that, so, so they were just what continuously or, or yeah I mean, you know, the family have got those on and they've men- maybe mentioned what sort of music they want in on in the background it, it's funnily enough it's it's one of those things that gets you into the topic a little bit because mm-hmm. you, you ask someone what's your best deathbed tune and they t- think about primarily about the music in the song they get a bit anxious that you might judge them because of whatever well, music crocodile rocks let's be honest <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's The Doors and nice. Soul Kitchen. I really like uh, The Doors. Actually, and you know what, The Doors, they, they play long songs. Mm, that yeah. could be good. Actually, one more, mm. actually, now you, you mention it. Um, has there ever been anyone who didn't want anyone else in the room, who wanted just to be alone? Oh, I mean, that happens fairly fairly often. People, it? Yeah, people see it as a private moment, and they sort of... Um, they, they'd rather be alone and their family not be around. Wow, okay. Um, I just, for some reason, I assume that would not well, mm. be... It, some it, people are quite fussy about the location where it happens, so they don't want it to be in their own home so that the memory isn't tainted, they think, okay, of the home. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they prefer to be in the hospice. And some people say, you know, when I get really unwell, um, keep Uncle Albert out and Aunt Mary because they're too noisy and too loud or whatever. Oh <laughs> I, don't, I don't like them very much. <laughs>